0: Talking movies with two guys named Mike. They usually the cover films that went gold, but this series is all Tarantino. and a few of these Michael Madsens in like five. Here we go, talking Talkin the movies of Q. MMOs reviewing movies of Q Tarantino, no rewatch series brought. MMO. Yes, my shame is at an all-time low, and I have no pride left. We are back, and we're back. Welcome to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar, kicking off our Quentin Tarantino series rewatch. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host, also Mike. Also Mike here, I have never
1: been prouder. Just I know,
0: stupid man. No, no, no.
1: You actually sang backup to yes. yourself.
0: I had to put on backup vocals on my own track. Look, DJ One, that's <laughs> mm, chef's yes. kiss. That's your best I work. I appreciate it. You thank should you. be named Mike Yankovic. <laughs> Bravo, my friend. I don't know about that, but thank you very much. Uh, and that is all setting the table as the uh, intro song. And thank you for Steeler's Wheel for doing the uh, original. We are doing a Quentin Tarantino rewatch series. We talked about this for a long time. We've hyped it up for a while. We are going much like the Pickleball. Pixar 1, which is just about done. We're about to wrap that up in the next couple weeks. We started as a lead into Toy Story 4. We are starting a Tarantino rewatch. We're going to handle it a little differently. Also, Mike's going to talk to you about that, but this is all in a way to hype up Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which we all expect to contend for the Oscars at the end of this film year. So, Mike, what's going to differentiate these episodes from some of the Pixar stuff we've been doing in other OSPs? A lot, really.
1: Uh, Seven things to be exact. Number one, and this is something we started doing in the Pixar rewatch, we were integrating all the behind the scenes and production nuggets throughout the review so rather than doing like a big segment early on we kind of just weave it in and i think that that flows a little better mm-hmm. uh, we're gonna do a year in review added to your specs which is something fun that we did for our oscar category retrospectives back in the day i think it's important because tarantino zigs when everybody else is zagging so often in the industry so mike is going to give us that year in review early on here. We're going to talk about our favorite song in the soundtrack and what we think Quentin's favorite song is because I bet
0: you can't guess what my answer is for this episode.
1: (laughs) Quentin always dances on like all the behind the scenes things that I see and he wrote a dance into this movie so we're going to ask ourselves a question what made Quentin dance and he dances like a goofy Phoebe dorky (laughs) idiot and it's brilliant. So by the way see Tarantino dancing on on all the behind the scenes footage. It's worth it right there. Uh, We're going to do an homages segment because Tarantino loves to pay homage to all the great cinema of his past and that's going to be in the non-spoiler script thoughts. Then we're going to try a little something crazy.
0: Yeah. We're going to perform a scene from Quentin Tarantino. And well, perform in quotes. We're going to do an interpretation of what we think those Our interpretation
1: are. of one of the best scenes of the yes. movie, that will be your spoiler warning <laughs>
0: breakdown interlude. There. We hope so, it makes you laugh, and at least not you'll learn something about us. In
1: spoiler section, we got three things. So it's actually eight. I should I should learn how to count. We have our opening segment that's going to be called Trademark Tarantino, where we talk about all of his classic moments that have become um, literally cult classic. Yeah, the scenes better. that have
0: really gripped the zeitgeist in whole and what these movies are most known for, as well as what they should be known for and really aren't big, otherwise. Big moments, little moments, overrated, underrated, mm-hmm.
1: properly rated kind of thing. We're going to do a screenwriter's corner where we're going to talk about advice Quentin Tarantino has said on the record. And finally, we're going to talk about Easter eggs, how the Tarantino-verse connects. And we got a couple things at the end of this episode. So that's eight things yeah.
0: new and you unique to these Tarantino rewatches. It's quite a rundown. We did try to focus on some way to differentiate these episodes from the Pixar ones, from the OSPs, but the same overall format, the overall structure, we're going to keep it the same and I'll repeat that right now. If you've not joined us before for, obviously you haven't joined us for a Tarantino rewatch episode, but a Pixar episode, an OSP, an Oscar sprint profile, what they are is basically two sections of a review or two reviews for the price of one. Mike alluded to this already. The first half of every one of these episodes, as our OSPs, as our Pixar episodes they are spoiler free they're non-spoiler if you've not seen the movie you're not going to get it spoiled in the first half of these episodes we're going to go over the specs we're going to go do some production stuff some hollywood stuff some business side of the the things that's going to be all in the non-spoiler section as well as the five things at the top of the list mike just read off to you we're going to have the spoiler warning sometimes it's a song breakdown and the pixar ones it's usually a clip from the movie as mike just described to you we're going to try something new with the tarantino ones and try doing our interpretation of a scene reenactment that'll be your spoiler warning uh and then on the second half that'll be all spoiler filled so the second half of all these reviews are going to be where the spoilers are the twists and turns we talk about the plot as well as the other stuff that mike just ran down for you so like we said again if you have not seen these movies yet that's okay don't worry we're going to start in the non-spoiler section for the first half and mike you have one more thing you want to add before we get underway here yeah i just want to quote two
1: articles give you the bibliography up front here indie wire had a great article that mike you you sent me last night chris O'Fall had an article about quentin tarantino returns to sundance with reservoir dogs 25 years after after its premiere we're gonna quote that a few times and then there was the original the making of reservoir dogs from 1993 it was reprinted in empire magazine in 2017 that was by jeff dawson and both articles are terrific you have some quotes from tarantino that we're going to weave in throughout
0: yeah and just to wrap up before we do kick it to mike and get this cast and crew section the non spoiler section underway uh look we're not blind to the controversies that have been attached to the man's work over the not years. Talking about Quentin Tarantino, and we did this uh, series with that in mind as well. We're going to be completely fair. We're going to highlight, uh, I guess, highlighting the lowlights is a weird way to put it, but we're going to focus on some of the lowlights, some of the issues people have, some of the issues that may have happened in production, and the backstory, and the making of. We're going to bring, the, we're going to talk about those as well. So it's not just a complete celebration of us going crazy for tarantino we are excited we are fans of his filmmaking but we're going to always we, we do strive to call things down the middle and be as objective as possible and with that in mind we know there's two or three or four sides to every story so we're going to try to present those as they come up as well with all that said now that's enough of a preface for you we're going to get the non-spoiler section underway and how we do that is mike is going to start with the cast and crew rundown
1: yeah and there's going to be one of those controversies right up top here but of course we have reservoir being written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. I'll talk about his IMDB bios for a hot minute each time we do one of these because he does some weird things on the side. For this particular episode, I'm going to give his lead-in, essentially, because I was surprised to learn that Reservoir Dogs was not Quentin Tarantino's directorial debut. I knew that he'd written and previously sold scripts. Well, not previously, because after this one hit, in the film festivals everybody's like oh true romance yeah,
0: you want a piece of that action yeah oh natural born yep. killers
1: now oliver stone yep. now uh, the other scott brother tony scott they want they want to be all over that but quentin actually wrote and uh directed a feature film in 1987 called my best friend's birthday i've never seen this i don't know if you have i've never
0: of- even heard of it <laughs> until i started doing research for this like you and it looks like something he starred in as well
1: yeah it's not considered like You know Canon Quentin Right At all So I mean
0: That's kind of his I wonder if that was A film film school Yeah yeah. I wonder if that was A film school project of his. I I didn't do any research On it because Yeah We were focusing on Just his feature length Theatrical stuff So uh, it's interesting I wonder if we could Track that down And maybe we'll give it A bonus episode Or something Once upon a time So
1: Quentin Was working in a video store He was trying to make Connections in Hollywood And he also got a job In 1988 On an episode Of the Golden Girls Mike As an Elvis Imperfected impersonator and they got photos all over the internet wow Uh, we'll probably have to post one uh, on our twitter or something thank
0: you for being a friend he's
1: literally (laughs) on a 1988 golden girls episode Harvey Keitel plays Mr. White. Before 92, Keitel had been best known for Scorsese films like Mean Streets, Taxi Driver, Last Temptation of Christ. He was also in Bad Timing, Nicholas Roeg there. And as Mike will say in the year in review, but this might be a year earlier, actually. Yeah, Uh, it was. Yeah, that's okay, because I always get the gosh darn years confused. (laughs) This This is
0: 92-93 is this Academy Award year, so the previous one would have been 91-92.
1: 91-92. Well, the 91-92 season in that (laughs) NBA campaign pain. <laughs> was a big year for Kaitel because he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in Bugsy uh, at the Academy Awards there. So Kaitel is fresh off an Academy Award, and uh, he's basically bankrolling an indie film, as Mike will talk about.
0: Yeah, 91-92, of course, the Academy, where we had our last sweep. That was Silence of the Lambs year for the Big yeah. Five. Tim Roth plays Mr. Orange.
1: He was an indie movie scene British actor known from Rosencrantz and Gildensturd Are Dead. He was in Vincent and Theo, playing Vincent Van Gogh. And Roth was BAFTA nominated in the hit, which sounds like a heist movie or whatever. I didn't look it up, but um, my guess is Quentin liked him from the hit. I, I remember know, him
0: as Lie to Me's main character, that show on Fox. That's also correct, <laughs>
1: but we'll get we we'll get to But I mean, Harvey Keitel, Quentin Tarantino loved him in Mean Streets. In terms of Michael Madsen, he's Mr. Blonde. Before 1992, he was also in Thelma and Louise, The Doors and The Natural. I know Quentin loved his work in Thelma and Louise.
0: Michael Madsen is like Tarantino's John Ratzenberger for those of you that have listened to the Pixar series (laughs) he'll just constantly be in work he's like Ving Rhames to the Mission Impossible series Michael
1: Madsen dances how Quentin (laughs) Witt that's what I think Uh, but yes Madsen always in the Tarantino films Chris Penn, brother of Sean, is nice guy Eddie, son son of Joe there. He was known from Footloose, the goofy one, Rumblefish, and from the movie my father keeps telling me to watch, Mike, and I just refuse every time. (laughs) Tom Cruise's All the Right Moves. Why is my father obsessed with that movie? Can we do a whole episode series on it? I can't that? answer that. No, of course not. <laughs> Steve Buscemi is Mr. Pink. Buscemi was just starting to emerge as an indie film talent after two roles for the Coen brothers in both Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing. He's going to become a regular in Tarantino movies as well. The other veteran presence, along with Keitel, was Lawrence Tierney. Lawrence Tierney's is best known from Born to Kill and Bodyguard. No,
0: he's best known from his one-episode arc as Elaine Bennis' father in Seinfeld, where it went about as well as it went in this movie.
1: So he is playing the old gangster, the
0: the old... He's the head. Yeah, he's the mafia. He's the kingpin.
1: He's the kingpin. And Mike... This is a crazy story. Yeah. That IndieWire article documents Tarantino firing Lawrence Tierney after they got into a fistfight, a huge argument. Now, apparently, by all accounts, everybody hated Lawrence Tierney on this production. They were happy. They applauded not the when first, Tarantino fired him.
0: Not the first production to get that reaction uh, towards Mr. Tierney, from what I've read.
1: But apparently, Tierney punched Tarantino out. Oh, this was an old man at that time, Yeah. Too. Yeah. Tarantino, whatever, got in his grill. And he got punched out. So that's not great. I mean, as a director... <laughs> no, that's not, a, that's not
0: great. That's correct. Your first movie, you're supposed to be a
1: CEO, you're supposed to moderate, you're supposed to be professional, and boom, he's getting punched out in his first production, or his first ma- major production. By a Hollywood
0: mainstay. I, I mean, Lawrence, you know, Mr. Tyranny there is, is a pretty uh, known actor at this time.
1: So legend has it, in that IndieWire article, states that Tarantino basically goes home that night thinking about the politics of it all. Smart man. And he knows that they're probably going to fire him. Yep. Or that's what he concludes. That they're going to fire him so that they don't have to reshoot all the scenes with Tyranny. Smart man. He's a first-time director. Yep. So he... Basically, came to the summation that I am going to have to take some shit if I don't want to work in the video. It's a quote anymore. right
0: from that IndieWire article that Mike keeps citing. Look, this is a guy that was ahead of his time, at least as far as the in- inner workings of the Hollywood system go. Especially for this being his first feature-length movie, he's probably not wrong they probably would have gotten him out of the way.
1: First time directors get canned all the time. They really do. To rip through the rest of the cast real quick, we have Edward Bunker from Tango and Cash and Runaway Train. He plays Mr. Blue. The crazy story about him is that Edward Bunker (laughs) spent most of his formative years... As a career criminal, yeah. like his 20s, he is a career criminal. He was locked up for, I think it was armed robbery that I read, and he had some things to say about this heist story and the realism of it later on that we can get into and in spoilers. Like, but, in
0: my head, after having read that, <laughs> He wasn't actually cast in this movie. This was just a job he was going to do. And they made a movie around it. And he's like, well, this is perfect timing. Perfect
1: timing. But in a way, Hollywood kind of saved him. You know, he became yeah. a working actor. He had a long career. And he got out of trouble. And he got rehabilitated. So it's a nice story as well. Mm. Randy Brooks plays Holdaway. Away. He famously got that part over Samuel L. Jackson. Things
0: would work out for Mr. Jackson.
1: Yes. And Quentin would... Uh,
0: Make it up to him. Yes, thank
1: you. <laughs> Kirk Baltz plays Officer Marvin Natch, and of course, Quentin Tarantino himself plays Mr. Brown. Originally, Quentin was set to play Mr. Pink, but then he cast Buscemi in the larger role instead, and I think that was a wise move. Well, that's a
0: story that kind of gets that's, mm-hmm. plays into uh, what happened with the financing. I'll touch on that when we go through Perfect. the specs right now. Yeah. Quentin Reservoir Dogs, obviously written and directed by Tarantino. The lone other credit of this going to Roger Avery for background radio dialogue written by. Uh, it's amazing what the credits become in Hollywood. The more we do these episodes, there's just a credit for anything you need. They're obviously not standardized. Avery would work with Tarantino, again having provided plot points for Tarantino's next script, the Tony Scott film, True Romance. Mike already shed a little bit of light on that. This film debuted January 21st, 1992 at Sundance. It went wide in the U.S. I guess you can call it that. October 23rd. It opened in 19 theaters, averaging a little over $7,000 per theater en route to making $2.8 million domestically, though it was really never in more than 63 theaters during its theatrical run Those numbers according to Box Office Mojo Wow,
1: I, that's the news to me
0: Lawrence Bender produced the film and has turned into a longtime Producer of Tarantino's work and is also Reportedly responsible for getting the script Into the hands of Harvey Keitel Through Bender's own Acting coach's wife yes. In the first place. Keitel was Said to be so impressed with it that he signed on And took the project from something Tarantino and Bender Planned on making for about $30,000 Shooting it in black and white when Tarantino Was prepared to be the Mr. Pink role as Mike just told you about, to something that would end up getting $1.2 million in funding. This came after Tarantino and Bender were said to be looking for funding elsewhere already so they wouldn't have to finance the whole thing on their own as it was. And they were dealt with all kinds of conditions from other financiers. One producer apparently wanted to give them $1.6 million, but they needed a a twist ending where everyone would come back to life at the end. What? Another producer wanted to give them a half a million dollars, but he wanted his girlfriend to be the Mr. Pink role or the Mr. Blonde role, I forget which. And that idea, I guess, was so crazy and off the wall that Tarantino and Bender actually considered doing it anyway. History being what it is, it went for $1.2 million after Kaitel's attachment. Andre Sekula did the cinematography. That would actually be his first film having done so. Sally Menke did the editing where she would eventually form a director-editor team with Tarantino according to Wikipedia before her unfortunate death in 2010. Miramax got mm. the distribution rights. Miramax really, in the, the early 90s, was was like the pillar for independent filmmaking.
1: Yeah, the Weinsteins were yeah. all over this and that's a big story in a, a couple books that I read last summer that I don't remember. Obviously don't remember. doing
0: this, one doing the Matt Damon Ben Affleck yeah. movie, a uh, goodwill hunting there, giving them their break. The uh, Weinsteins. <sighs> That's a story. The film was a success at Sundance, but it really would prove to be a moneymaker on the home video market after Tarantino was able to reach Academy acclaim for his work two years later in Pulp Fiction. Yet still, Reservoir Dogs must be considered one of, if not the most celebrated feature-length directorial debut of all time based on its critic numbers. Yeah. Stands right now at an 8.3 IMDb rating on 822,000 votes. That's good for number 79 on the IMDb Top 250 Movies list with a score that is tied such films as The Original Old Boy, Citizen Kane, and M. It carries a 91% certified Fresh Rotten tomato score and 68 critic reviews, six of those being rotten. 95% audience score and just shy of half a million reviews there and a 79 Metascore as well. Though the film will be relatively awardsless when it comes to the notable races of 92. And this is where the kind of year in review comes into play. Now this being Tarantino's first film, it's tough to kind of match him up with what was going on in the year of 1992. I can't imagine what was actually happening in current times right. had a lot of impact on his script.
1: Not at all. I mean, if anything, it's just he knows that the industry's going one way, and I'm going to go the exact opposite way. And I'm literally going to parody and satire what everybody else has been doing recently, and we're going to get into some more, than that, so instead more of that later, too. For the,
0: for the uh, year-in retrospective part here, I wanted to kind of concentrate on what was going on and what he was up against in Cannes at ni- in 1992's Cannes Film Festival. Mm. The film festival was opened with basic instinct, obviously its own cult classic in its own right. It was closed by Ron Howard's Far and Away, which was, I think, the second time only Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman shared the screen together. I'm not sure if there were a couple yet at that point.
1: So that, those are two commercial films, even though one mm-hmm. is very much a erotic thriller, but involves 40 year old. It's about a 40 year old white man, so they figured he was going to make <laughs> big money uh, back then.
0: Other films that were in competition: uh, Basic Instinct, like we said. There was also Howard's End by James Ivory, Of Mice and Men by Garrison Keats was there. The Player by Robert Altman also was in '92's. Candy. Okay. Okay, film that, festival here that fits mm-hmm. as like that indie film vibe how about Twin Peaks Firewalk with me by David Lynch <laughs> that also fits those ones make sense some of the other big budget ones maybe
1: not
0: Reservoir Dogs was considered films out of competition though Tarantino apparently or reportedly was told this according to Mental Floss by a lot of people involved in the Cannes Film Festival that he would be considered for these awards and was guaranteed to walk home with something mm-hmm. like I said he ends up relatively awardsless for this film not only at Cannes but overall on the year once won some awards at film festivals no longer in existence, such as the Critics' Awards at the Ubari International Film Festival and the Pre-Turnage Award for the USA Film Category at the Avignon Film Festival. But as far as awards still going today, the closest Tarantino came to a claim was Buscemi winning the Supporting Actor Award at the Film Independent Spirit Awards in 92, 93, where well, Tarant- Tarantino would lose the Best Director category he was nominated for to Carl Franklin for one false move, and he would lose Best First Feature category. To Neil Jimenez and Michael Steinberg for The Water Dance. Mike, what's The Water Dance about? I don't know.
1: I've never seen The Water <laughs> Dance. I did see One False Move. One False Move is very good. It's a very good script. It's almost like Red Rock West with Nicolas Cage. It's one of those like neo-noir films.
0: So that's at least a worthy competitor yeah. at the time, certainly. I liked it. Yeah. Bill
1: Paxton, I want to say.
0: Probably not The Water Dance, though, huh?
1: I have no idea what that
0: is. <laughs> the Water <laughs> Dance would be noticeably absent from Empire's list of the 500 greatest films of all time, where Reservoir Dogs would rank it as 97th place, with the magazine also referring to it as the greatest independent film ever made. I imagine narrowly edging out The Water Dance for that acclaim. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Okay,
1: uh, let's get into the plot premise here, Mike. When a simple jewelry heist goes horribly wrong, the surviving criminals begin to suspect that one of them is a police informant. So what we wanted to do for this episode, it's actually probably the ninth thing that's different than a normal (laughs) episode, but we wanted to talk about, instead of expectations or a teaser review, how we first watched the movie Reservoir Dogs. Because this is a movie that will shake you to the core at that first viewing. So I remember hearing about it I'm a sophomore or a freshman in high school I remember hearing about it that this is one of those effed up movies you gotta see it Mike, I picked the wrong day to watch this movie because I picked the day I went to my grandparents' house with my 10-year-old. I think then, so I'm like 15, 16. Yep. And I I I forget how much older than I am my younger brothers. I'm about seven years older than my brother David and my cousin Tony who were born like within a few days of each other. Now, they are basically hanging out and the three of us watch Reservoir Dogs that I rented and they handled it so much better than me.
0: Oh, yeah? So I'm the old one. I'm
1: the one who's just getting into film, and they're just like just stoic just oh that's so cool this is awesome and i'm like what the? Fuck?
0: your stomach's churning and I
1: am, <laughs> oh my god i'm getting that just you know that that thing at the back of your throat yeah. like the suds when you're just so afraid of something yeah oh my god but i i just had to see it i watched this movie at my grandparents house we ate a lot of pizza frite, aka fried dough it was a great <laughs> it was a great day that i'll never forget how about you
0: i, I have a less uh, elegant story i actually didn't get around to seeing this movie for the first time i think until i in college yeah uh i was not you know I, I i've embraced film in the last 10 15 years or so but like the first 20 or so films i sorry, I guess I said 10 years but in the first 20 or so years i mm-hmm. was not like a film fanatic and worried about the history of the business i was a fan of the oscars i was a fan of the the, the you know the politicking of the of it all and seeing what happened on screen but i i, I think i got to this one like i imagine many people did in 94 and 95 yeah. i took in pulp fiction first for the first time and i was like wow that is really unlike pretty much anything i had seen at this point let me see what else this director did yeah i got to reservoir dogs and i saw and i was just blown away as equally if not more so than I was, having seen Pulp Fiction for the first time. So maybe, in a way, Tarantino and his early work kind of spurred me on, even though it was later in life, to the film critic and the 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 nose-in-the-air stuffiness I have towards did, film right now. Did you
1: remember the room? Was my brother involved again? Or I think it my was my brother?
0: freshman year, so I wasn't okay. as... I, I became good friends with your brother at, like, the latter half of freshman year into sophomore year. So Pizza Freak wasn't it? No, no Pizza Freak. As if my brother was, there was a chance. M- yeah, a it might have been DP Doe. Uh, DP Doe <laughs> might have been consumed, but no, Oh, no pizza free you need just heavy carbs with a movie like this <laughs> bottom line
1: all right so we're gonna jump right into a review of the production values a couple quick things to say here we're gonna go sight to sound cinematography mike wow yeah spectacular we got the twirl around the opening diner scene we get that circular moving camera what did you think of that like i thought that was cool we're we're actually going to black which works in credits yeah It doesn't work kind of the rest of the movie, but in credits, like right in your cold open, it kind of works.
0: I I feel like he wanted to do something to put his stamp on it right away. You can't watch this movie without thinking that Tarantino... Want to distinguish himself at all points, right? Yeah. So, like you said, he zags when everyone else is zigging or zigging while everyone else is zagging. So, what can you do to kind of differentiate yourself without having these great graphics and this huge budget? So, I think that was one of the things. Another thing, as far as sight goes with cinematography, was having those setback shots, those establishing shots, and letting like two or three things happen all in the one weird, shot. Isn't yeah, it?
1: like when they're in the warehouse, white and pink, let's go to the other room, he stays at that yeah. distance. It happens again later in Pulp Fiction. It's very, very strange it's a little off-putting to yeah be i mean if you're not expecting it you're not ready for it of course you got some epic tracking shots he moves the camera throughout the film especially with some shootouts love it going to talk more about it editing i thought was really cool and iconic as well and i think the the actual trademark tarantino for the production values is kind of the combination of cinematography and editing in a way, because the slow-motion walk to Little Green Bag after that opening scene. So he's got the showiest, just like Scorsese did in his first movie, just like Spike Lee did in his first movie, you go very showy early on. And Tarantino did that in the opening diner scene, and then he's got his big Little Green Bag scene where all the guys slow-motion walk to the car.
0: Arguably the most famous scene from this movie, if not a couple other ones, but yeah.
1: Let's get into what made Quentin dance. I think it's an obvious (laughs) answer for this particular episode, but let me run down the soundtrack real quick. We have, you know, Steelers Wheel stuck in the middle with you. We have Little Green Bag by the George Baker selection. We have I Gotcha by Joe Tex. We have Fool for Love by Sandy Rogers. Hooked on a feeling. Yeah. This can't be right. Bjorn Skiffs, who was must a cover or something. We're going to talk more about Coconut by Harry Nielsen. Harvest Moon by Jay Joyce. Magic Carpet Ride by Bedlam. Now, I think what Quentin Tarantino says about his music just blew my mind. He's like, I wanted to go for the super sugary 70s bubblegum sound. One, because some people are annoyed by it. And two, <laughs> because I grew up with it. The sugariness of it, the catchiness of it, really lightens up a rude, rough movie. So it's like a contrast then thing.
0: Okay. <laughs>
1: um pop music against killing and torture you know
0: it's interesting that he would take that slant on it as opposed to just saying i'm a big fan of 70s music <laughs> <laughs> right because these seem like relatively random songs and he does use that radio station as a through line throughout that's the movie that's a pontificatory way
1: of just saying you like the music right that's what you just yeah. said. <laughs> mean,
0: I, I would think that would be his explanation but to see he put that much thought into it of trying to purposely make something that's audibly unsettling and off-putting compared to what you're viewing on screen that's a guy that's already thinking three steps and he's not thinking like a first-time filmmaker now whether he actually felt that in 1992 and that's the reason for it or that quote was something that was you know celebrating the 25th anniversary at Cannes as from the Cannes uh, debut who knows and maybe that's something he's come up with in his mind later on but if he was thinking that for his first feature-length film that's advanced thinking
1: it absolutely is Mike Uh, you ready to go into performances here yeah let's talk about them So, this is what Tarantino says about characters. Quote, and in movies, everybody has to be so fucking likable. I'm going to get a Tarantino impression by the end of this. i got to put okay at the end. Okay? 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 (laughs) Everybody has to be so fucking likable. He barks. You can write a novel about a perfect bastard. It doesn't mean you don't want to turn the page. Alright, a little double negative there. But bottom line is, perfect people are not watchable on screen, is what Tarantino was saying. You don't have to make them so likable, and he he
0: proves that. (laughs) These are some despicable people. They're despicable,
1: (laughs) from start to finish. uh, Most of them, especially. And the actual heroes are just bit characters in this movie. We're going to talk about that as well. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. This is like the worst of the worst. Now, the only problem is that Of the worst of the worst, you usually have to have a winner anyway, Mm -hmm. right? If that's the way you're going to go with the screenplay, somebody has to overcome and somebody has to either survive or a group of people have to survive and win. So, in a way, you're crowning the best of the worst, which inherently might be an issue for some people.
1: That makes some sense. The ending, I think, justifies some of it. I'm going to disagree with you, but we'll we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. I do think that he makes his most evil character... The most polite character in the film. I think he's going to lean I into don't think that that's an
0: accident. Yeah, I much agree.
1: harder with other movies, yep. and I, I, that's fascinating. Like the the most polite, the most the, the one who's actually ge- excuse me yeah. that that comes to a head in like
0: four or five films, by the way. Yes. Yeah.
1: So let's go through the characters a little bit. Tim Roth's performance is just something <laughs> you I hate. It. A hot take. You hate it. It's a hot take. I hate it, I which think I it's, think is an absurd take for what think he's it's doing. it's Laughable. I th- I just every time I watch this movie, I watched it three times before this rewatch. I hate okay.
0: it. We're not spoiling anything because the second scene in this movie is Tim Roth in the back seat shot through the stomach. Yes. Okay. Bloody. You have an issue with the juxtaposition between Roth in scene one and scenes two through finish. I have an issue
1: because when he is like this, speaking <laughs> okay. with a retainer, right? And then the rest of his like, even if you like, what is his mouth filling with blood?
0: Look, I'm not a doctor. Yes. I don't know, but you shouldn't go from he He shot me. My I'm dead. My counter to that, Larry, is the man who was shot in the stomach.
1: <laughs> it's probably a fair counter. I probably can't get that far. I don't want to linger on this. You probably win this argument. However, it just seems silly to me every time I watch this movie.
0: That's that's fine. I mean, I can I can I could take that. I still think there's plenty of justification for it but whatever we can move on past it. I thought Kaitel was great in this movie. Kaitel I mean he's can, does he ever play a character I don't know which is scary to me
1: but he sounds like you know the sound the way he delivers all of his lines like every one of my relatives I can see that
0: I'm not kidding I can
1: see that all the second and third cousins like my mom like my my grandmother's one of 13 children right I think I got that number right I hope (laughs) I did good God and there's so many cousins and they're all like Harvey So it's just like uh, being John Malkovich comes over my house and she's a bunch of Harvey Keitel's (laughs) For family reunions. (laughs) I'm
0: jealous in one way because he's spectacular.
1: (laughs) He's a character, let's just put it that way. Michael Madsen kind of dances like every single one of my family members as well. So I have an immediate kinsmanship with those two characters (laughs) and that really disturbs me after what they do in this movie. Michael
0: Madsen is so slimy cool. He's, like, such a despicable person, but he's so cool, too, when he's delivering his lines. Yeah,
1: you know he's not long for the... Every character he plays is just not long for the world. Yeah, he's like, a even Sean if they Dean, survive yeah. the movie, they're not long for right. the world because they live fast and they die hard. He's so and laid back about it. <laughs> he is. He mm. knows
0: it, too. Yeah. I think
1: those characters just have that, that in they're their They're walking bones.
0: death wishes. They yeah. know it.
1: Uh, Steve Buscemi, I thought, is incredible. Like, the way he delivered, Like, he's standing up to Harvey Keitel. Like, who do you find? Yeah. You're going to find a guy at the end of the cast list of a Coen Brothers movie as Quentin Tarantino, and you're going to cast him in this huge role to go toe-to-toe yeah. with Harvey Keitel for three of the biggest scenes of the film, and
0: only Steve Buscemi could do that. I couldn't help but think about these characters in that matrix, the alignment chart. Mm-hmm. And and Buscemi, to me, is clearly just neutral. Yeah. He's the guy in the middle Has throughout this be. whole thing because he's just a professional there to do a job. And like his most rattled he is, is when someone dares to be so unprofessional that they shouldn't <laughs> be acting that way. Yeah, And he plays that all throughout. He's just so, it's not, it's different than being a one note character. He's well-rounded, but he's so, his mantra and his principle and his constitution is so seen and on the screen throughout every time he's on screen.
1: Totally agree. It works perfect. I talk about that alignment. Actually, you know, if you're gonna study the alignment, study it with a movie like Resident yeah, absolutely. Dogs. I thought Chris Penn as nice guy Eddie is is phenomenal. Like he gets some soliloquies. I love Tarantino dialogue too because when you read scripts by anybody else. There's really these massive paragraphs. But Tarantino scripts are always like that. There's the massive paragraphs that are musical, essentially. And like Chris Penn in the car ride on the way to the warehouse is just just spitting off these beautiful lyrics. (laughs) He (laughs)
0: spits when he talks more than me, I think. That's true. (laughs) You and I, for that matter.
1: I already said Lawrence Tierney. As crazy as the production must have been... I thought he was perfect, yeah. stubborn old man. Of
0: course, See, he was straight-laced as could be. So,
1: we disagree on Tim Roth, but otherwise, we're, we're big fans yeah. of this cast. Huge fans. Script thoughts, Mike. And it's hard to do these, but I think the way we're going to do it going forward is we're going to talk about the homages and what kind of genres this film lives in. The plot was very similar to Stanley Kubrick's The Killing.
0: Was this something you've seen?
1: Yeah, I saw The Killing way back. I don't remember it that well. well I just saw it the once- But when accused of plagiarism, Tarantino says he doesn't plagiarize, he does homages. So this is really the perfect way to start kind of this segment for the rest of this rewatch here. Because two other heist movies influenced him heavily. They're Kansas City Confidential, The Big Combo. But here's what Tarantino said about the making of Reservoir Dogs. And it's in that Empire article. He said while he was working at the video store, he's like, I love the heist genre. Let me just write a movie in this genre. Because he wrote Reservoir Dogs while he's working at the mm-hmm. video store. So he's like, all right, well, every single night I, I'm writing, I'm going to go home and I'm going to watch a heist movie. So he watched Thomas Crown Affair, Top Copy, Rafifi, Top Copy. <laughs> he watches a different heist movie every night and and that really helped him he definitely found a couple things that he hated he would hate in a heist movie the cliche of something small and coincidental going wrong during the heist to fuck up the robbers instead he wanted them to get away and then kind of kind of self-destruct he also wanted to redo the genre in a way i think i'm gonna save that a little bit for spoilers but my two cents on this is you have capable, smart characters on the, on the good side and on the bad side. And when that happens, that opposition is going to be complex, I think, when you got smart good guys and bad guys, which is a simple way to describe a complex
0: situation. He doesn't have a small coincidence in this movie. <laughs> he has a massive blunder. <laughs> so I guess he was spot on with avoiding that, with which he does not like. So I guess
1: we could finish comparing this movie to the Oscars in a quick lens, Mike
0: yeah so again i mean to to recap no awards this thing didn't win it was nominated for a couple lesser film festival things independent spirit awards was probably the biggest award show that we know of today that this was nominated for it didn't win except for buscemi like i said but as far as what did win and what it should have been nominated for at the oscars what to compare it against start with best director that's probably the most obvious one clint eastwood ended up winning it for unforgiven neil jordan for the crying game james ivory for howard's end robert altman from the player those are two movies we just talked about actually debuting in can as well alongside Reservoir Dogs, and Martin Bress for Scent of a Woman were all the nominees. Like I said, Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven winning. Shamefully, I've never seen the player. I've seen the rest. I have the player. I have it on my laptop, and I've had it for like a year and a half, and I've just never hit play on it.
1: Blind buys? What a shock. What a terrible shock to my system that I am going to talk in this
0: voice for the rest of the episode because I'm so shocked. (laughs) I'm shocked that I bought a, a Robert Altman movie of my own recognizance. No, I'm not at all. If you buy whatever you think you want to see, then you never watch them. Yeah, that's right. It's ridiculous. No, <laughs> oh, Clint Eastwood's
1: great and Unforgiven. That's a slow rewatch. When I've... Rewatched Unforgiven. It's not the
0: bit. You no, know, the it's a lot slower a than you think it is. Than you would think. Absolutely, I agree with that. Uh, scent of a woman. <laughs> I don't really have a problem. I, don't, I mean, you know, having not seen the player obviously, but I don't really have a problem with him getting, especially knowing the academy and how they treat first timers. And this was a different era, obviously, no social media for which to get momentum and public support all funneled through one voice and one lens do you think
1: reservoir dog is a masterpiece on the level of a jordan peels get out of a greta gerwig i was Lady thinking Bird? about
0: this all throughout if it, like where would i rank them as far as directorial features and debuts and it's so hard to compare because there mm. wasn't social media like get out is a masterpiece in part because social media exists right because there's a platform now for people who want social justice and racist, horrible people alike. Mm-hmm. And that Get Out kind of walks that fine line of exposing things that may not be as prevalent in everyday life, at least not to people like you and me, uh, at were these different kind of alternative news channels around and alternative websites for for highlighting these kinds of racism that at least maybe they weren't so recognizable to us prior to something like get out so i i think it's such a weird comparison to make and obviously the second part of that Greta Gerwig, how in the world can you compare reservoir dogs to something like ladybird
1: something that's polished though you think like he's got a his handle on the convention's to the point where he can innovate from them. But it, they're very different movies. Right. Like, Lady Bird leans into those conventions and just does it better than we've seen in a Agreed. while, right? I mean, it's a great coming-of-age movie done to perfection. And Get Out is a great... Suspe- I do not give away the genre, let's just say. Right. <laughs> but it, it really does things well. But it does follow those conventions. This is totally different. This is like... Like we said, it's, it's a, a heist, heist movie, movie without the heist. Without the heist, made about the rendezvous. Yeah. What the hell is it's that? It's an
0: interesting question. I'd love to hear people's input, because I don't know that I have an answer as to where I would rank them. I think they're three of the greatest directorial debuts of all time, to be honest.
1: So, I mean, if we're putting this into the Oscars, putting it into our top five, we'd have to do a full year in review, I yeah. guess, to say. But, you know, to, to make a quicker work of this, Screenplay had the Crying Game win, and uh, Best Picture went to Unforgiven. So, Mike... Does it beat any of those necessarily? I don't. I don't know. I mean, I, you can argue the quality of *Unforgiven*, even if I don't love the rewatch as much as I like this one, or I'm entertained by this one. Early
0: '90s too was Clint Eastwood's bread and butter. *Crying Game* was a very revolutionary game well made. Well made. I don't know if
1: the I would have picked the *Crying Game*. I, I might have. I'm picked... surprised
0: it didn't get an original screenplay. though, no, after yeah. all, that's usually where we default with these great feature debuts if we don't want to reward the director.
1: I'm gonna say it's better than *Lorenzo's Oil*. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that.
0: Have you seen Lorenzo's Oil? I think I have actually. Oh, uh, have you? I have never I, seen I, it. It's been, been a long time. I it. like
1: George Miller. I'm just gonna say, you know, the Reservoir Dogs. That's probably a safe bet. Husbands and Wives by Woody Allen. It's probably so better. Again, than that it's a too. different
0: time. Woody Allen was this revered director back in those days, and not 2019's Woody Allen, who can't, who Amazon had to sell the rights back to him.
1: I like these year in review and these Oscar lenses now, but we could talk about it forever, can we? I'm gonna just say it's probably in my top fives for all three if I had to re rank the year. How about you?
0: I would think so. If if we had to go back and rewatch everything that was nominated of these 10 or so films, I can't imagine not being most impressed with what Tarantino did.
1: But the indie film scene is so new that back then, an indie film becoming an Oscar winner or an Oscar nominee is not something that had precedent or that was in their, their legacy. Really, Tarantino kind of started that indie film movement, essentially, and Do the Right Thing is kind of the second film by Spike Lee, or the third film, whatever it was. I think it was the third or fourth film actually. So, yeah, that's a smaller film that made made a lot of headway and got nominated that we've covered before, I think in 89 or 90. Yeah. But yeah, that doesn't line up necessarily. Maybe they just had like an like an added nominee for that indie film a few years and if you did it one year, you probably don't do it the next.
0: Could have also been the Academy at its most snobbish. You know, Maybe. I mean, this is a very un-academy like movie.
1: Well, this is a year where you have Howard's End. Right. And you have Unforgiven, the classic Western. Right. And then the crying game was groundbreaking it at was. the time. So if you put one groundbreaking exactly. movie in there. Exactly. Yeah, you'll have sense. of a Woman. You've hit your quota. Yeah, you'll yeah. have Scent of a Woman in there. You won't have right. room for Tarantino.
0: All right, let's try this uh, spoiler preview, the spoiler break, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. And now for your spoiler warning pleasure... The Mike, Mike, and Oscar Theater Company presents a Quentin Tarantino scene reenactment interpretation.
1: Don't take another step, Mr. White. Mr. White explodes, raising his gun and charging towards Mr. Blonde. Fuck you, maniac! It's your fucking fault we're in so much trouble! Mr. Blonde calmly sits down. He looks to Mr. Pink. What's this guy's
0: problem? What's my problem? Yeah, I got a problem. I got a big problem with any trigger-happy madman who almost gets me shot. What are you
1: talking about?
0: That fucking shooting spree in the store.
1: Fuck them. They set off the alarm. They deserved what they got. You almost killed me. Asshole.
0: Find any idea what type of guy you are. I never would have agreed to work with you.
1: You going to bark all day, little doggy, or are you going to bite?
0: This is the spoiler section for the Mike, Mike, and Oscar Quentin Tarantino rewatch series covering the movie Reservoir Dogs. If you've not seen the movie yet, this is a good place for you to hit pause. uh, Go watch the movie. We'll be here waiting for you when you come back. If you've seen the movie already, if you want to hear our thoughts on what happens, or if we've just hyped up the spoiler section so much that you cannot go another minute without hearing what happens, this is the place you want to be. It's all spoilers all the time ahead for the movie Reservoir Dogs as part of the Quentin Tarantino rewatch series brought to you by Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Mike, we're going to start with a new segment that you talked about in the opening of this episode trademark tarantino
1: so my trademark tarantino scene number one is that opening and we've talked a lot about it that the big twirl around the diner what i want to talk about being so trademark tarantino is the little you know basically like seinfeldian talking about nothing yeah and we have mr pink saying i don't tip and there's a big back and forth between everybody. What do you mean you don't tip? <laughs> and he does. I don't tip. I don't believe in it. And then number one, this is a true story, a true state of mind for Tarantino at this time. He was working minimum wage at the video store, Mike, and he had this righteous indignation about tipping because he was upset that he had a minimum wage job that wasn't deemed tip-worthy by society. When interviewed, he literally requoted the movie.
0: If we had to tip blockbuster retailers, yeah. you would be broke. I would be <laughs> absolutely broke.
1: And it's also... File
0: for bankruptcy. <laughs>
1: how many times?
0: Case of art imitating life. Imitating art imitating life, I guess, in a way. Because like he's, he's using his real-life events to write this down and then putting himself into that role to be part of that conversation in a very meta way. Yeah, and he was originally putting himself... In the pink role. In the pink role, you know,
1: with the casting nugget there. So that's crazy to me that that is just something that he still gets, like, hyped up about when he's interviewed (laughs) to this day. He's
0: not a man that holds grudges.
1: But what I love about the scene so much, Mike, is that you have repetition of dialogue, and then when Joe comes back... They start to play that scene all over again until what? The scene flips and we basically get Pink kowtowing to Joe with White still going against Joe. Yeah. Giving him back the book before. Like you got the conflict between White and Joe we are shown that Joe is the most stubborn of these characters, which is going to come through in the finale. And I just love that so much. It's really great foreshadowing. It's also sets the tone better than any scene in any movie in a while.
0: It's a bit of a misdirection, too. Because, like I said in the non-spoiler section, Mr. Pink is so a man of his principles, not necessarily ethical morals or anyone's morals, but his set of principles. I am a professional, a professional must-stay professional, and he's very aligned with his constitution, the way he sees the world. And yet here, it takes Joe just saying, give me the tip, I don't care about your morals, I don't care about your constitution. And Pink immediately goes, all right.
1: (laughs) Well, because, you know, he, he cites the exception to his rule. Right. I paid for breakfast while well, because you because paid. You for ba-
0: now, is that him actually saying that, the reasoning, or is that just him? being a fraud to his own self. It's
1: him being a fraud to yeah. his own self, but he's going to be a fraud to his own self and his own principles later as well. He's a man who spouts his principles, but who breaks all of his own principles at the same time, which morally speaking, ethically speaking, makes sense because these men are rationalizing the fact that they're breaking law to improve their own standing. So these they're total frauds. They're total hypocrites, just like the rest of the world, but especially them. And then, of course, you have you know classic Tarantino with the slow motion walk like I talked about the little green bag that's my scene number 1 mike what's kind of your scene number 1 for trademark tarantino
0: it's it's a little underrated too cuz i i think we're, what what this movie is most known for we'll talk about in a minute but for me the the scene where orange is rehearsing the story, the anecdote, the funny thing that happened on the drug deal because mm-hmm. he's trying to integrate himself into Joe's to Joe's crew here, and he needs to practice the story, the anecdote, just to make himself more personable and more believable as a human being that this character that he's making is his undercover cop. So we start by seeing him rehearsing this, the telling of the story involved being a drug dealer and him coming upon four cops and a drug dog in a random bathroom. It starts as just him reciting it to himself. Because his partner insists you need this story because it's going to make you more believable. So he's in his own uh, apartment reciting the story to himself, and as the story keeps going, he then we cut to him reciting it for his partner, and he's getting more into the role and getting more rehearsed. How about that backdrop? By that the way, that was so beautiful. That was so beautiful. It's covered in graffiti and paint. Oh my pink. god! I don't it's, know. It's almost as if that place couldn't actually exist.
1: It almost feels like a new version of like the Roman, like the yeah. The, Right, but it, and it's this low angle shot of
0: him on top of the. He's on a, he's on a stage, essentially, stage. and he's performing yeah. for the, the the audience of one that is his partner. Like it could be Julius Shakespeare's Julius Caesar,
1: except L.A. version from 1990. And he's
0: reciting, and and like you said before, the dialogue (laughs) is like a music. It's like a song. It's like poetry because he keeps telling the story. He's performing it for his partner, and then we go to him actually performing the story for Joe, Mister White, and and nice guy Eddie in the Mm -hmm. Strip Club. This integrates himself into Joe's crew here. They come up with questions. He's answering them, bing, bang, boom, right away, yeah. fabricating everything off the top of his head, essentially. And then we finish the scene with him actually now in reciting the story, finishing the story in the fake airport bathroom with the fake cops that only exists for purposes of the story, with the fake dog that only exists for purposes of the story, and the drama, once the story is finished, gets heightened up as if we're actually in this scene, even though we all know it's all bullshit. Mm. Uh, to me, just everything about that conveyance of that story was just so ridiculously artful. And so high class. The Hateful Eight will probably have
1: something closest to that scene coming up at the tail end of this rewatch. But you're right. The editing is absolutely brilliant. Stunning. And his partnership with Sally Menke there, Mike, was just fortuitous. You can see
0: why they had such a great relationship right away. Uh, Now, neither of those scenes are what this film is best known for. Not probably what the, the casual fan would say is most traditional Tarantino or trademark Tarantino. Obviously, the stuck-in-the-middle-with-you scene. That torture scene. So that's my scene number two. That's your scene yeah. number two.
1: Mike, this is the kind of scene that scares the ever-living shit out of you the first time you watch it. It scared, it freaked me the hell out when I was a youngster to the point where I literally, in the back of my throat, like I said, you get that sudsy feeling because you're that scared. This is such a weird scene to get scared by. I rewatch it now and it's probably the best scene of the movie
0: by a lot and i'm shocked to rewatch watch because i hate torture scenes you're not the only one and uh you're in good company that mental flaws article i cited before it's called it's titled 14 colorful facts about reservoir dogs it came out a couple of years ago it's it's by eric d snyder but yep. he cites wes craven had to leave the theater yep. once that scene came on unbelievable Because Wes Craven, I spit on your graves, Wes Craven couldn't handle the torture scene that was going on. The Last House on the Left
1: is perhaps the most disturbing movie that I've ever seen. That's that's like the level, that's the length I'll go. I was just so disgusted by the end of that movie it's just beyond disgust. I,
0: I had to shut it off. It was last house on the left I was thinking I'm not expert on your game, but yes, your idea is the same. okay. They, they they're doing these awful things to humans and yet the actors of those scenes can't handle. Now, is it because it was set to a sugary bubblegum pop song, which was Tarantino's idea at the output? You know, I wonder if he shows him cutting off
1: the ear like all the money in the world?
0: it would we'll have been cheaper minor smaller it would have been cheaper
1: spoiler there but yeah it would have been cheaper it would have been grosser the fact that he pans away he's not making st- a
0: torture porn film
1: stylistically yeah. th- i think that's an important move and then you see the bloody mess now uh. the bloody mess of it is shocking every time he turns his head but at the same time it's like really upsetting and you're realizing what a hero this man Marvin Nash is. Marvin Nash, to me, is the only hero of this story, yeah. which is so fascinating because he is the, the the character with the tiniest part of the in yeah. the film. So Marvin Nash is the hero. He's true
0: good. If we're talking about the diagram again, <laughs> he's on the upper left-hand corner. Wow. And this
1: is where you put true good in this movie. True good is going to get it tortured and murdered. Yeah. And True Good in this movie does not survive. Now, True Good shows himself to be that level of hero after we get the reveal that Tim Roth, Mr. Orange, is a cop. Because what we have is the torture scene cut off the ear. Crazy. Just disgusting, but crazy. Crazily watchable because of Madsen's performance, I would say. Unbelievable. And then you have him going out, getting the gasoline, throwing the gasoline all over this guy. You have the, the despicable monologue from Madsen. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to torture you anyway. And then here's... I like killing
0: cops. is essentially his basis of reasoning. Oh, my reasoning. God. I love torturing cops.
1: A sadistic animal, but through the, you know, excuse me, pal, yeah. you know, non sequiturs of I'm Mr. Polite. So he comes back in there, and, he, and then he's like, oh, are you done? Are you done? And he's about to light the match. Again, being his polite, weirdly charismatic, charming, villainous self. Boom. Blown away
0: by Mr. Orange. Who's basically left for dead at this point, Up in, uh, as far as we're concerned. We don't have interactions with him.
1: Mr. Blonde kind of takes his pulse. Michael Madsen kind of, he doesn't take his pulse, but he goes over there. I think it's more to his showmanship. He's just like, all right, he's out. Yeah. But I'm going to pretend just to check, because I see the gun there. I'm that aware mm. as a Good point. villain. Yeah, this guy could, but maybe that's like his sick thrill. All right, I'll leave him with a gun, but he's on my side anyway. I don't know what he's
0: thinking. So here's my question now. We have picked two scenes that are trademark Tarantino that are a little more underrated that we think deserve more recognition. Why is this scene the more known one? Is it just because it's so outrageous and outlandish? It is so out.
1: Yeah, the juxtaposition between that song and the torture. So it's all the song, one, then, right? But then you have the gasoline. I just think the camera, what the camera does, is so good. In this scene. That's why I love re-watching it. Because you have zoom in on Michael Madsen getting shot. Twirl around to the gun, shooting Michael Madsen across the room. Yeah. And the camera is just twirling on Tim Roth, shooting Michael Madsen. The camera spins all the way around in a figure-eight move and finishes on Madsen falling dead at the end of
0: that scene. It's remarkable. If you were to bring up this scene to... 10 casual movie-going fans that have seen Reservoir Dogs at one point in their yeah. life. How many of them do you think would remember that Madsen gets killed in that scene?
1: Oh, because you're thinking about the ear? Yeah, I'm just I asking. Know. I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know, but I definitely, when I think of Reservoir Dogs myself, I think of that scene. That you think of the I ending can't, of it. I can't it. ignore yeah. it, that scene.
0: I t- I forgot but, it. I, I hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs since I watched it in college, and I what? was like, I'm pretty sure Madsen gets killed here. I'm pretty sure he doesn't like the cop on fire. I couldn't remember, and then i saw it
1: that's interesting yeah. but what a hero we have marvin nash being because marvin we didn't know that marvin nash knew there was an undercover well, cop he's getting doused with gasoline and he's not giving up that information the
0: background the subtext of how much of this movie relies on what characters already know that we don't because usually we're ahead of the characters right, right. In thrillers and suspense The characters here know what happened exactly in the heist. We don't. The characters here know who knows each other. We don't until it's revealed. We're the ones that are behind the eight ball the entire time in this movie. Yeah, Tarantino does not
1: like suspense necessarily. He likes to have the audience chasing it. Yeah. And that...
0: Which is a 180. That's a complete 180 of of, of convention
1: it is it absolutely is so for our last scene in trademark tarantino we're going to talk about something that is a bit underrated and from my scene i already kind of mentioned it so i'll just kind of quote it quick it's it's nice guy eddie in the car not the racist stuff which is just awful we're going to talk about that yeah but nice guy eddie with the soliloquy Do do I sound like I'm joking? He's fucking driving around with a cop in his trunk. Pause. I I don't know who did that. I don't know who has the loot. If anybody has the loot. Who's dead? Who's alive? Who's caught? Who's not? You get this big musical It's like a tempo, too. Yeah. You know? With him in the car, and of course, nobody speaks like this with that rhythm. Nice guy Eddie does in the movie, and it just fits so beautifully. It's really well done. So that's my underrated Tarantino. What's your underrated Tarantino? The either?
0: conversation between White and Orange. As they're scoping out the place for the first time, and they really form that father-son-like bond, Dude, that don't Daddy. Is the ending that's I mean, that's the consequence for Mr. for Mr. White at the end of this movie. It's more than a fraternal. Thing. Bond. it is a putt yeah I mean, it's father no it's God it's God. literally father son I mean, mr white goes out of his way to put his neck on the line in saving Orange in the first place. He could have left him behind, left him for dead. In wanting to get care for him, he could have left him behind, let him die on the floor. He wanted to get medical attention for him. And then it's this conversation that makes sense as to why Mr. White is so adamant about Joe not killing Orange at the very last scene and will lead to that big Mexican standoff. Because he's created this bond with this man so much so that in this world where Mr. White has no friends, he's left his partner, Alabama, behind. Which yeah. he talks about with Joe already. He doesn't really care about anyone but apparently the Brewers, which we learn, right? Yeah. So he's made this bond so much so with this guy and he cares so much and feels so responsible for his death that he gives him his real name, which is the could be the undoing of all of them. And it's fascinating
1: that you get that backstory nugget about, you know, Mr. White leaving the most important person in his world. So he is in search yeah. of new, most important people in his
0: world. Well, so either this... that or he's shown he's capable of not caring that much about anyone. So, this is the kind of connection that he's willing to put himself on the line for, which is a new experience for everyone involved. But
1: it's not really a new experience for him only because of the backstory, because of the fact that he was with essentially yeah. the love of his life. You're right. So that, that's where I'm at with him. but And he's kind of, you know, he's lost. He's really much more lost than he puts on. And it's why his anger gets the best of him at the end of the movie. So again, these characters
0: being total hypocrites. That's a good point. And another point I wanted to make about the conversation is how it plays into, I guess we'll talk about our worst now and our issues with it. Yeah. Part of the highlight of that scene is Keitel talking Tim Roth through how you deal with people if they want to be cowboys, if they want to be Charles Bronson, if it's a, if it's a... A person behind the counter, they're just being a tough guy. Just break them, break their nose with a butt of your gun. If it's a woman, just give her a glance like she's next. Uh, if it's a manager, the managers know better than to really step up. So that's this is going to be a guy that's a real cowboy. You're really going to have to make an example out of him and break him. So, okay, you go through how it's not okay. I, I think that's genius in one aspect because it's, it's, again, strengthening the bond of the father-son relationship. The problem I have with it is that you're going through how it's not okay to disrespect a woman and put your hands on her, and yet you have, earlier in this movie, Mr. Pink talking about the differences between white and black women and all the racist undertones in that conversation that is wholly unnecessary. As every use of that word in this movie is
1: absolutely. It also shows what scumbags, professional criminals. But what what these people are the scum of the earth. These are yes. these are bad people. Yes, it does. These are people that have habitually crossed lines of sadism of of just. Levels of evil that you and I and regular people never do, they don't cross these lines as far as we know. Obviously, you find monsters everywhere, but someone who is just so nonchalantly telling you that you cut off a finger that's what you do. If you go, if you run into a problem, someone who's willing to do that to maim somebody else, that is oh my god despicable. And Mr. White has been a character that we come to relate to throughout the movie because he's acting in a way that's paternal. And I want to you know, give this quote for Tarantino. This is, I don't know, his take on it. He goes, I wanted to go the opposite way of how Hollywood normally works. I wanted you to hear them say, his character's I wanted you to hear them say very ugly things. I also wanted you to hear them say profound things. I wanted them to come across like fucking idiots one moment and brilliant geniuses the next.
0: Okay, so here's the issue I have with that. I understand his risk-taking in writing in, basically, I want to show you how bad these people are. I'm going to use the most offensive language, Yeah. but they're going to get their comeuppance. They're going to get judgment cast against them because they are so terrible people. You're going they're going to get their to meet their maker or jail time
1: whatever. I've said something like this before. It's it's a, it's almost Tarantino playing God. And he's got the ego to yes. play God yeah. as a writer at least and and judging them with how the movie ends for their racism, their chauvinism, their homophobia, which is all really tough to take and every time one of those words is mentioned in this movie, rewatching this, it hits you like a ton of bricks. Oh, like we just had like an ar- we had an argument off camera or we stayed, we stopped recording because I'm like these words, every time I hear one, I'm freaking the fuck out it's used so obviously in the scenes you're like actually it's used as an aside and you actually argued me down for the most part that most of the time it's used it's used as you know an aside it's just worked it's unnecessary it's it's egregious it
0: shouldn't be used I'm of the opinion it should never be used in filmmaking fine Fine by me take it out of the English
1: language and it definitely shouldn't be used yeah but take that argument aside
0: right. right you take that argument aside and let's say there's some magical force that says it has to be Okay. Yeah. If you're going to use it, you can use it impactfully, which he does sometimes, but not all the time. And the way it's used most egregiously is in a conversation where Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi's character, is contrasting the differences between white women and black women and what in his opinion black men and white men wouldn't put up with yes. in those situations. It's a to- it's a total aside. It has nothing to do with the plot of the movie. It doesn't substantiate characteristics or characterisms at all. Mm-hmm. And yet the character that uses the, that word most egregiously is the only one we see for sure. I mean, it was a choice to not show him get his comeuppance, as opposed to every other character who is equally, if not more, terrible. Yeah. They, we see their end game. Mm-hmm. And we're left to assume the one character who uses that word most egregiously and most passe, not meet his end or his maker or his judgment in any way we're left to assume whatever happens to him once he leaves that warehouse now i would argue that
1: it's and i assumed he got caught because of how quickly the cops come in to that scene you know they literally he grabs diamonds runs away and then you have the scramble on the ground the slow movement of Mr. White and Orange. Mr. Orange on the ground the Mr. Orange telling Mr. White I'm a cop. Right. Mr. White crying the crazy cry putting a gun to his head cops are there. So to me that's like within 45 seconds the cops have them surrounded by implication of the voices saying freeze don't don't shoot. Right. I would guess if they had the place surrounded, waiting for Joe, hear all the gunshots. Cops have been chasing it the whole movie. The guy who runs out first, they're going to nab him pretty quick. That's fine. I I would. Okay, I, but you are correct. Yeah. Saying that he wasn't shown having his come up
0: purposefully. Yeah. I mean, it's in the script that each and every one of these characters hits their ironic or definitive end.
1: Now. You do have a bunch of characters who act horribly, get their comeuppance. You do. That's in there for sure. You have another character that you can make an argument does get his comeuppance, but we don't know. The worst one, essentially.
0: Uh, the, the one that Tarantino was going to play. The most the most offensive, and whether he met his judgment or not, he leaves the place with the MacGuffin. He leaves with a bag of diamonds, whether he gets caught or not, and he leaves with his life.
1: Uh, I hate playing devil's advocate to this, but I, I will for one more beat. Because, you know, is Tarantino giving him the benefit of the doubt, which is scary to do for anybody in today's world? Is he saying that, you know, hey, racists get away, bad people get away too? Sure. You know, so, you know, it, it's bottom line the fact that I say bad people get away doesn't mean i'm necessarily a bad person that happens in my story is i'm not am i glorifying that part of it not necessarily but here's here's where i come in on the rewatch of all these bad scenes because there's homophobia there's chauvinism and there's racism multiple times Yes. all of that ruins these scenes yes. otherwise Agreed. great scenes Agreed. like
0: a thousand percent you
1: have a great scene in the car ride and then you have that line yep. from Mr. Pink. You have a great scene with the names and then you have the homophobic line by Joe. Yeah. You have great scenes between, you know, important scenes between white and orange and then you have the chauvinism with the fact that he's talking about cutting off fingers and punch, it's punching
0: women in the face. I think it's a credit to where we've come too, because of that. Because ten years ago, I don't think we had these... I mean, there was some issues, but they weren't as prevalent. The, the words didn't sting as much. They didn't cringe as much, you know? And At and least that, not to that's, me. That's sad. Oh, cool. oh wow. absolutely. thousand percent. It's, it's effed up,
1: but the fact that he's trying to force these words into his fiction, I don't think it ages it well. And I don't think oh, people... Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely like, not. Like, this movie is going to be held back
0: yeah. in the annals of history because... You have all this shit. in Yeah, it. I I totally totally agree, and we've already seen evidence of it with you and me alone just watching it, and how yeah. the it just you know this cringe crawl out of your skin awfulness in this. Yeah,
1: yeah. and it's it's it sucks unfortunately. Yeah. Screenwriting advice from Tarantino. I got one quote. And we'll you know riff on the structure for a hot minute here, and here's the quote from Tarantino in this Empire article. I actually think that if movies were to follow closer the rules for novels, they would benefit. In the transition from novels to movies, one of the first things that goes is the structure. Chronological hmm. order isn't the only way, way you can tell a story. Novels go back and forth All the time, a novel thinks nothing of starting in the middle of the story. Unquote. So that's what happens here.
0: He's really a man ahead of his time. If you take these quotes, I mean, he gets, he has the foresight to see this, and he's absolutely right. And this is, I think, you got to think no further than Christopher Nolan, yeah, trying maybe perfecting what he's just talking about here in Memento, where we're all over the place as
1: viewers. So the timeline of of any
0: story doesn't necessarily have to be chronological
1: because. Stories move in a, in a certain order in terms of effect on the audience and the formulas of story can be met by jumping around the timeline. And Tarantino realizes this early. He realizes this from other great movies and stories and novels, really. And Novels have been doing this the longest. TV's doing it the most now, I would say, even though you get your occasional film that jumps around. But I, I do think the novelty of this has worn off. But I will say, I mean, just look at the scene structure and the story structure I'm going to do it loosely here. I didn't map out the whole thing. But you have... Right before the heist, you have the breakfast. Then you have, after the heist, the car rendezvous, the escape, essentially. You have a backstory of one character, Mr. Blonde. You have the going further into the rendezvous, the torture scene with the cop. You have the backstory of Mr. Orange, which is basically telling you the big twist of the movie, that he is a cop. And then, you know, it goes on and on and on until you finish with the end of the rendezvous, the shootout.
0: Yeah, so you're basically at, like... Four, six, two, yeah, seven, one,
1: yeah. You're all over the place in the screenplay. But the beats of a story structure, like inciting incident, th- th- that doesn't have to happen necessarily ten minutes into the chronology of the at real time. It needs to happen ten minutes or fifteen minutes into the story.
0: What do you think is the onus or the burden on the viewer to understand? what's going on like the 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 burden for me for what makes a film great in this is because like you just said he has the not necessarily the plot is in order but the emphasis or the dramatic feeling or the attachment is in order because those those characteristics and those attributes play out chronologically in a way i don't remember the original question
1: you asked me because it was so long but i will say that i think he's such a fan of movies that he understands what an audience needs to feel because and whenever you inter- interview Tarantino, he puts himself in the shoes of the audience. So he knows what a good movie feels like and he knows when it's supposed to feel that way. So we talked about it before. I don't think he loves suspense. And if he uses suspense, it'll be for something entirely different like at the beginning of *Inglorious Bastards. And he'll make all the goods delivered beyond the suspenseful goods. The suspense is just basically a lead into that scene. What Tarantino wants is the audience to be curious and surprised more often than to have this all-knowing, on-high perspective.
0: Why doesn't that happen more often then? Obviously, the goods delivered in something like this, Memento, whatever, are Infinitely more fruitful than a regular movie. I think it's is it just degree of difficulty. It's, it's degree of difficulty because it's so much harder
1: to write. How do you surprise people? That is so hard to do. Mm-hmm. Give them something they never knew they always wanted. How do you do that? I mean, the, to me, that's the secret to movie making and storytelling in general. That That, that is in my words. That I think that's something I uniquely have coined at some point. I don't know if I have. Maybe it's in my subconscious because I've watched so much <laughs> shit. I don't know. But what they never knew they always wanted. How do you do that? Yeah. He does it because he flips the genre on its head he uses his own what he wants to see as whammy moments in the scene and then he's got his own voice throughout so that's it's just hard to do
0: so somehow i got back to your original question no i think you did you answered the last one the (laughs) first one you didn't you ignored completely but that's all right uh i really i i really think it's interesting having an actual screenwriter here on set talking about these things and walking them through and and pointing these things out because regular layman people and regular audience members like me these aren't things that i would think about at all as best as I try to grasp it whatever this fucking script is <laughs> it's
1: next level screenwriting I can recognize it I can't do it so good. <laughs>
0: Damn. let's Damn. talk about some Easter eggs and some of the Tarantino verse to wrap up here and just some of the some of the cutesy little things that we're definitely in and we learned we're definitely in purposefully over time uh, look I'm not gonna try it in this section to highlight the overall Tarantino verse that's been pretty well documented throughout the uh, the existence of these films we yep. all know Michael Madsen's character here is the brother John Travolta's character in pulp fiction. Yep. That's all stuff that we've kind of learned to know they what wanted I'm trying a to spin do. Off. Yeah, I'm trying to to just have some other things that I thought were interesting that I maybe didn't know. Maybe you didn't know either. We'll see. The first one of which I guess is going to be all the hints that Tarantino gives us that Mr. Orange is the informant before he comes out and says Well, so.
1: but which is a mid-movie climax towards late act two. Right. I, I didn't time it out, but that that's a major moment in the film that happens later.
0: So there's three huge giveaways that happen uh, at different points in the film. The most obvious one is the orange balloon that for no reason is tailing nice guy Eddie as he's screaming towards the warehouse That's as plain a giveaway, I think, as we could have. That's crazy. Uh, The second of which happens when Mr. White and Mr. Pink are arguing in the warehouse, having left Mr. Orange with a gunshot wound on the ramp. They're in the back room now, arguing about who the mole could be. If you look on the side of the counter, there are six jars standing in a row. Four of them are two whites and two pinks. They're filled with a white substance and a pink substance. Then there is a huge gap between the original four and the latter two. And beyond the gap... There are two filled with orange substances, kind of the subtext of which being that the orange is far away and far removed from the white and pink. Yes. And the most obvious and, uh, to me, most clever one, the one that was pointed out, all of these were pointed out, I'll give the source in a minute, but the most clever one to me is at the very opening scene, the breakfast scene, which we talked about, Mr. Pink goes on his diatribe about not tipping and how he doesn't believe in it, won't tip, blah, blah, blah. Joe comes back to the table, collects the tips, notice that there's a dollar missing. Who didn't tip? Who is the first person immediately to pipe up and say, hey, it's Mr. Pink, he didn't tip. Rat out Mr. Pink, he didn't tip. It's Mr. Orange. So even through that scene alone, you're getting the indication that Mr. Orange is the rat. He's the one that doesn't give uh, two thoughts about turning on these people because he doesn't care for them. All of these three were written out in the Cracked article, Five Brilliant Clues Hidden in the Background of Movies. I uh, just thought that was really creative and really inventive. And there's no way they were there by accident, by the way. Oh, I love it. No, there's no
1: way with that those colors. Right. Names. Absolutely. On purpose.
0: So the next...
1: Easter egg, Mike, is the fact that we have Buddy Holly as a waiter in Pulp Fiction at Jackrabbit Slims. He is played by Steve Buscemi, who is Mr. Pink in this movie. He's the only character to get away who's the one who brings it up that, that I don't tip in that earlier scene, if you can't place him, because we're talking about colors. I know this must be difficult. <laughs> he is a waiter in the next movie. It's, on la- it's further up on Route 66. Mike, do we think that Mr. Pink got away and he is a waiter in the next one, or do we think Quentin Tarantino, just like Steve Buscemi, thought he'd make a good deadpan waiter?
0: I think it's likely the latter. Uh, he just thought it would be funny that Buscemi actually plays a waiter when he was at this whole monologue against being a waiter in the first movie. However, I want to believe it's the former as well. But here's the thing. <laughs>
1: Tarantino knows that he's casting the same actor from his previous yeah. movie. He knows that it's you know, taking place with uh, connections from the Vega brothers. Sure. He wrote that in there purposefully and he's using the same actor. So I don't think this is something that got by Tarantino that at the last second he just said, all right, I have to, I need somebody for this role. Let me get Steve Buscemi.
0: I would be shocked if that happened. And look, you established that the Vega brothers are brothers and they're close enough in age where it's totally within the timeline that if the Tarantino verse is a real thing, had Mr. Pink escaped... He would be around the same age only two years later and maybe he made it to Jackrabbit Slims. All that being said,
1: if he was going to write something about the Vega brothers together, he would have to write it as a prequel version. Yes. Now, which one dies first, we don't know necessarily. Good point.
0: So maybe it's an origin story for Mr. Pink.
1: Yeah, I know I'm spoiling Pulp Fiction a little bit here, but if you've seen Reservoir Dogs, you've probably seen Pulp Fiction, right? (laughs) Sorry, maybe I'll have to put spoilers for Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs at the end of the spoiler section in the show notes, but Mike... My guess is that he just likes Steve Buscemi. However, I know that Tarantino knows the score here.
0: Yeah, I, I, again, that's kind of, you're hitting on reasons why I want to believe. I want yeah, it to, to be I, true. You might
1: be right, absolutely right.
0: Uh, the last one, and mm-hmm. all of these two last two came from a Mental Floss article as well that I've highlighted and brought up uh, throughout the, the duration here. Uh, Mental Floss also brings up a potential link to Pulp Fiction in this movie. I had never heard of this before, but Joe, in his conversation while recruiting Mr. Blonde, the Michael Madsen character, mm-hmm. who we all know, again, is going to be John Travolta's character's brother in Pulp Fiction. Joe reveals that he has a buyer for the stones that the crew is going to take away from the jewelry store. Mental Floss brings up the question and the suggestion, is it possible but that the buyer that Joe is referring to is Marcellus Wallace himself, and that those diamonds are the content of the briefcase in Pulp Fiction? Just a nice little question. Pulp Fiction's next on our docket. We're going to cover it in our next Tarantino episode. I have the least faith in this one. Yeah. But again, I want to believe that Tarantino had the forethought, and this is all a string that nobody's picked up on 30-some-odd or years later.
1: I want to believe
0: that as well. I, I, I want to
1: believe that at least Tarantino wants us to ask these specific questions. Right, yeah, that's probably a better way to put it. Based his mise-en-scene. Right. right. And based on his connections in the screenplays.
0: It's also nice to have something based in the Tarantino reality to at least suggest what that briefcase could hold. I because, other, I mean, you and I have talked about it before. We tend to believe it's just a MacGuffin. It's just nothing, right? Uh, so it's nice to actually have something plot-relevant to say... Well, at least maybe there's a chance.
1: We know that he's lives with these stories for years and years and years, and we know that he's a, you know, a, a megalomaniac on the one side and a genius on the other. Yeah. He could very well have a through line throughout these movies. Maybe upon further study, we'll crack it, and that'll be <laughs> our f- 15 minutes of fame right there. Fingers crossed. Mike, let's <laughs> get out of
0: here with some final thoughts from you.
1: I just think that Bloodbath finale is so unique. I, I just wanted to mention one thing, that his squib right nice yeah. guy Eddie's squib goes off and this is something that tarantino's talked about throughout we have nobody shooting nice guy eddie we have harvey keitel turn and point the gun but the squib goes off before he turns
0: can i tell you i watched that scene three times I me too i was under the impression that mr white never turned in time but that mr pink actually shot eddie I thought that was the story they were being told. Because it would have had to have been based on the timing it, of the script. Right. And, yeah. and Mr. Pink had gotten to a safe enough place where he had a gun and it was undercover. So I thought that was what it, what he was going for, but apparently not the case. Also, if you look back at the scene where White and Pink are talking to each other in that back room, this this means nothing, by the way. And it's not nearly as important <laughs> okay. as the script going off. But Harvey Keitel goes, he lights Steve Buscemi's cigarette and then he goes to light his. That flame never comes anywhere near Harvey Keitel's cigarette. He does not light a cigarette at all and he keeps... Having it in his hand. Yeah, I
1: don't. I mean, he goes that. to
0: wash his face after, so maybe that was all. Well, I remember
1: he doesn't like the cigarette, and then he lights it later. Yes, he does. Like after his anger, his outburst. Right. Yes. Yeah, see, that's true. So, it's almost so maybe like that was all purposeful. Is, is on purpose. Like I almost get like sexual pleasure. Out oh, of it. there you go. You know, again, smarter it, it, men than
0: me dealing with. The I, I don't
1: know. I don't know. I don't know. But I just know what cigarette is cliched for, and he doesn't light it before he. But he puts out. the
0: flame up to it. Like he, he does, goes he, to
1: light it, and then he stops. I know, and he does. He he clearly does not light it there. I would agree with you.
0: I obsess over nonsense. <laughs> I like it. I like it
1: because it made. I didn't think of the whole sexual pleasure from outbursts of anger. No, that's good. That's before. good. I like that. But, but that's a theory. I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. But Mike, how about a movie that ends with your three principal characters shooting each other at once? Crazy, right? It's,
0: it's such an old trope. That's like it's been mimicked in The Office, even. Now, after this movie. Right, but I couldn't think of another movie in which it ends this way, with that kind of old Hollywood, I got a gun pointed at you, you got a gun pointed at him, he's got a gun pointed at my sister, type thing. But it always... Somebody lived. The hero makes all of that work. Walks away,
1: yeah. Not in this case. Nobody's the hero. The hero already got shot, Marvin Nash.
0: And we do agree that that White kills Mr. Orange, right? White kills...
1: Mr. Orange, yes, because you hear the big gunshot the, the shot. and then the volley of shots or the hail of gunfire right. yeah. you know, okay. descends upon it. So I, I did want to mention one more thing about Mr. Orange. And he's a very complex character have, to have such a crazy performance. I almost wonder if he's giving a bad performance on purpose because he knows it's going to be the downfall of his character. He knows that, well, I swear on my mother's grave, <laughs> he knows that's going to be not convincing, to nice guy Eddie,
0: I have to shoot you in the stomach before I'm <laughs> recording, and we'll see how different you act and sound.
1: <laughs> so, the fact that Mr. Orange has to tell Mr. White, he knows the place is surrounded, he knows what the plant, police plan is, and yet he basically, after he gets shot for that last time, he what he knows he's dead, but on principle, again, a man with a code great characters to make movies about people with codes of conduct that he says he has to tell Mr. White after Mr. White died for him I am a cop why does he have to do that why can't he wait 10 minutes Maybe
0: maybe that father son kinship that Mr. White felt was a two way street yeah. And maybe that was orange giving his last gasp of like you screwed either I'm sorry I love you but do you
1: think he's overcome with guilt there because his reflex is yeah. to shoot the woman that shot him and he knows that's a that that's his nightmare like an innocent died. He knows that On his watch, Mr. White went on a rampage and killed all those cops. He knows that this entire bloody rampage happened because, for whatever reason, he's undercover and he can't stop it. It's all just, you know, swirled out of control. His guilt reaches a climax in that scene. Shot. I have to tell this man. I have to die by my principles. We talked about
0: it in the pre-production, too. We both agree. Orange is not Joe Friday. He's not an action cop. He's a guy that has to give himself pep talks and uh, believability. He just wants to be like Mr. Cool. He fell He doesn't want to be Rambo.
1: Right, but he fell in love with the idea of being Mr. Cool. Right. And but he was
0: never prepared to get hurt on the job.
1: Because right. once
0: he gets hurt on the job, he turns into a whining maniac.
1: You're not going to get hurt, says right. in the mirror
0: so yeah I think a there's a of lot dilemma to that while yeah, like well, we went a little long this is our debut episode for Tarantino had to get a lot of stuff off the top that we will not be repeating in future episodes so hopefully we can keep those a little shorter but if not <laughs> this is what you can expect from us we're going to try to keep these segments going throughout all of Tarantino's movies coming up obviously Mike's going to give you the schedule of what you can expect from MMO next I just want to tell you as always we love hearing and reading and responding to your comments questions concerns anything else you have about this episode or anything we do in the MMO empire you can reach out to us Mike Mike and Oscar on Facebook Mike 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 and Oscar on Instagram, MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike and Oscar.com at gmail.com and on Reddit. We are available everywhere. You hear podcasts, Tune and Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Play, etc. If you have a free moment, if you like what you hear, if you appreciate what we do here, we would love a five-star review on iTunes. If you take a couple seconds out of your really day. Helps. Write us a nice comment. Those truly do go a long way. And we love talking with all you guys in any of those platforms. Mike, what's coming up? What's some words of wisdom? Let's get out of here on a high note. So
1: yeah, we have Mike Mike and Oscar Weekly, our weekly variety show coming out this Tuesday. We believe leave sometime on Tuesday and that's a little different I know we keep changing we had a Sunday we had a Monday but we're back to Tuesday for this particular week we're going to do Coco from Pixar we're going to do Pulp Fiction next week as well we're also going to have a collaboration that we're going to announce shortly uh, which is going to be fun we're going on somebody else's podcast and we're going to record that tomorrow and finally you know long term we got a couple Oscar movies coming out not only at the end of June with the Toy Story 4 we have yesterday the Beatles movie we just did Rocket Man, but obviously in July, you have Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is what this whole rewatch is for. Yeah. So we're, we're building up to these Oscar <laughs> movies, these Oscar sprint profiles to give you the fuller experience and to give us all the rewards of the study. Because yeah. we were talking about all our other series rewatches from the MCU to Mission Impossible to Halloween even the nun, Mike, after we did the Conjuring series <laughs> rewatch, was something you and I enjoyed quite a bit, right? Yeah. There was a movie that we never would have enjoyed if we did not study the rest of the films in the franchise. Absolutely. But the goods delivered to you and I, selfishly, <laughs> outweigh whatever they're experiencing out there. That's
0: what matters most. And that'll be my words of wisdom
1: <laughs> today, because we enjoy, like, how much... More could we have liked Mission Impossible: Fallout or Halloween 2018? Yeah,
0: no, they're certainly the fruits of the
1: labor. The two Avengers weird. movies, yeah. we've loved them so much because of all the studying. So it's been, it's been
0: fun. So hopefully these rewatches watches enhance your enjoyment. Hopefully by doing this, we're helping make awards season year-round without the stuffiness. Guys, when reality sucks, you can come watching with us, we will check you out. soon.